Assalamu alaikum, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to day nine of Surah Baqarah. Am I right? Day nine? Oh my god, crazy. Okay, amazing. Um, as usual, I, I wanted to call attention to the incredible khutbah from yesterday um, on what is your contribution to the Muslim consciousness. Um, I realized that, you know, these are such long um, khutbahs by normal mosque standards, and so it is difficult for people to watch. Um, I was on Facebook and noticed that one of my Facebook friends um, shared one of his friend's comments that I hate khutbahs. And of course, to me, that's an invitation to say, hey, well, you know, maybe you haven't seen what we do at Asuli. So I took, uh, took it upon myself to share the link on both my friend's Facebook page and also on the page of his friends, um, who I didn't know, and I didn't know anything about him, but he was the one who started the conversation. So I posted the link to yesterday's. Um, no comment, except this morning I woke up and the friend of the friend who I don't know commented and said, oh God, no, I don't need performance futility. He could have just reminded people to remember Allah. So I, was like immediately then deleted my comment i'm like you don't deserve to have this on your page and i'm really irritated because if you cannot hear a khutbah and i and i said on my comment you know watch it all the way through and see if you still hate khutbahs because no one speaks truth to power like Khalid Abu Fadl week in week out and i was hoping you know and my friend is someone who is a young scholar so i was hoping and he knows you know the, the thought um and the books that this would be like a welcome and exciting development that wow somebody's actually saying stuff that really matters and so that reaction to me was shocking um, and immediately told me that, okay, well, I have nothing more to say. And I, like I said, I don't think you should even have this on your page. Um, but, you know, it, it just disturbed me so much because it just said, spoke volumes about where we are um, as Muslims. It's like if you really can't tolerate listening to um, a khutbah that, you know, really systematically constructs the idea of, you know, where is our collective Muslim consciousness and that each individual consciousness contributes to the collective and then goes through the examples of what's happening in our world, very painful examples, and how it's really, um, you know, going to take a change of individual commitment and consciousness to, to change things. If you can't hear that and feel like it's, you know, performance uh, futility or whatever you call it, um, it just says so much. And you know, some of his comments um, to other people who had commented about his comment about hating khutbahs um, made him say about himself, well, I've dedicated my entire life to studying and serving Islam and blah, blah, blah. So you know the rest. So then, you know, part of yesterday's khutbah was also, um, you know, what has become, I think, an important refrain. Oftentimes, um, the Sheikh will refer to the Islamic Center of Southern California and Zaytuna Institute. Um, as examples of, of what's wrong. And, you know, I, I felt like maybe I should just share my testimony um, about the Islamic Center of Southern California in particular, because this is one of the things that um, keeps coming up and people might not understand, you know, why the focus on the Islamic Center of Southern California. And I thought long and hard about whether I wanted to do this or not, because this is not intended to be like, okay, let me just sit and complain. But testimony, I think there's probably a fine line between testifying to what you've seen and experienced and try to understand and learn from that 
um, versus just, you know, sitting and complaining about someone and um, whining, you know, which is, you know, not the point. There's no point to whining. But it's an important thing to understand where we are and maybe what it's going to take because the Islamic Center of Southern California is situated in Los Angeles, California. We have a very, very long history. It goes back to when um, the professor's father um, was very dear friends from the age of five with the founder, Mayor Hatut. They were, you know, childhood friends in Egypt. And so the, just, the, the history is, and the family ties and everything is, is much, you know, beyond my awareness um, and understanding. But even when I met the Sheikh, I knew that, you know, these were family friends and they, you know, there was just so much history. Um, and Mayor Hatut had created this, you know, um, beautiful mosque in Southern California. And it was known um, for being open-minded and liberal and kind of the hope of the future. And so, you know, people think of Los Angeles. People think of being, you know, like, okay, what's on the cutting edge of what's happening in Islam? And certainly Mayor Hatut's, um, you know, narrative about it is this is where the change of Islam is going to happen. It's going to be out of the Islamic Center of Southern California. It's going to be out of California. This is where the change, you know, out of America. We're going to change the world. And so this is how oftentimes even Sheikh would, you know, um, spend his summers when he would come and visit from Egypt, you know, when he was young and be part of the youth group. And he would um, stay at Mayor Hatut's house and take the bus. If, if any, anyone knows the geography of uh, Los Angeles, Mayor Hatut lived in the Pasadena area and the Islamic Center was in the downtown area, which is quite a long way, especially when you traverse by bus, public bus, public transport in Los Angeles. It's its own story. It's scary. So, you know, you imagine someone coming from Egypt, not really, or actually, no, sorry, he was at, uh, at, actually, I guess from Egypt at, at certain points, um, would come in the summer and navigate the bus system to arrive every single day at the Islamic Center during the summer and answer phones. That's how he started. So, um, so that was, you know, and, and part of the youth group and grew up with a lot of people there, but, you know, that he was educated, the sheikh was educated at Yale as an undergrad, you know, so the Islamic Center was just more of a thing to family connection and trying to give back to the Islamic Center. So over time, as, um, you know, as sheikh graduated from Yale, you know, went into graduate studies, um, married, divorced, you know, eventually we, we married, um, I was introduced to the Islamic Center and Merhatut very shortly after we married. Um, it was pre-9-11. Um, and, you know, again, vibrant community. Um, and Merhatut would always say, oh, you guys need to move here. You need to come join our community. We need you. We need young scholars. We need scholars. So um, over time, we eventually came. And, and we, we did that. Um, and but actually, I should say, even before we came, it was interesting because um, you know, we would come every so often to like youth group meetings or, you know, conferences um, and all of that. And certainly after 9-11, um, there was a lot more attention paid on the, you know, on Islam as a whole. Um, well, we came, we eventually moved um, after, you know, the professor was teaching at University of Texas and, you know, the circumstances came where we were able to come to LA. Um, and so we were in, the Sheikh was invited to come give a talk um, and he gave a six-part talk on um, Islamic law, challenges confronting Islamic law. I still have the audio recordings, and um, they might actually even be on SoundCloud or something like that. And it was incredible because people got very, very excited. It was like given over a series of weekends, and you know, more and more people were showing up, and people were just like, "Wow, they've never heard anything like this." And people who are familiar with the Sheikh's approach to things understand, like, this is something that's very excited. It's exciting. This is the kind of stuff that would get him kicked out of Islamic camps too, because. 
you know, he, you would, he would say things about the Islamic tradition that no one else had ever heard that would stir people's, you know, ideas and thinking. It was like very, especially um, enticing for, for the youth. But we were never invited back again after that, surprisingly. You know, we lived in Los Angeles for 25 years and it was, um, you know, for the first 10 years of that, after that first series of lectures, the sheikh was never invited again to give lectures. Um, and, you know, we have, I don't want to get into that whole um, issue of why, but people who would, you know, be interested in hearing, like would hear about Sheikh, you know, or the professor, would be like, well, wait, he's here in Los Angeles, why don't you invite him to the Islamic Center? And the Islamic Center would always say, well, you know, he's too busy, we invite him all the time, he always says no because he's very busy, you know, in his academic, academic job. And then those same people would come and ask the Sheikh, well, why is it that you don't ever come to the Islamic Center? And his, re his reaction would always be the same, invite me and I'll come, invite me and I'll come. So pretty soon, um, you know, and that was at a time before Islamophobia really took hold. Like right after 9-11, there was that window of period where people really wanted to understand. They were open. They wanted to understand what is this religion? I don't know anything about Islam. What would, what's in the faith that would turn people you know, to ter terrorism and call, you know, so people were not yet angry and the Islamophobia industry had not quite yet taken hold. They were genuinely interested in learning about Islam. And at that time, there was this divide between Islamic activists and academics. And it was very much like that, I, you know, you had activists who felt that, you know, we got this. We don't need academics. You know, we can handle, you know, all this stuff. And so part of the criticism would be, you know, a part of the narrative was, well, you know, academics, they're in their ivory towers. They're studying things that, you know, are not really relevant to us common people. They're not on the front line. It doesn't really matter. They're really out of touch with what's happening. And so that was often what would happen is people would, you know, accuse the, or, or you know, use that narrative. Ah, uh, you know, Khalid Abufadl, he's probably busy in his ivory tower. You know, that's why he can't come and speak to us at the mosque. So time passed, 10 years after 9-11, you know, Islamophobia industry is up and running and, you know, it's starting, you know, it's not enough anymore to say, well, Islam is a religion of peace. You know, we don't, there's a difference between, you know, Muslims and, you know, the faith and all the stuff that typ typically, you know, people are used to hearing. All of that stuff just wasn't playing anymore. And so then at that point, um, the Islamic Center of Southern California reconsidered, well, maybe we should have Khalid Abulfadl invite him back for something and see if he has something to say. They needed new material. And he came and it was incredible. And people realized that, okay, maybe we do need to have activists and academics come together in some way, shape, or form. And so there was, you know, a little bit of, of stepping back and reconnecting, but, you know, by that time, I mean, 10 years of, you know, this sort of underlying message that there's something wrong, there's some break in a relationship between Khaled Abulfadl, there's some negativity there. He, for whatever reason, should not be part of our community. So slowly but surely, um, we got invited you know, Sheikh got invited back and would give a talk here at the Islamic Center every so often, give a khutbah. You can find some of these recordings on our Search for Beauty site. Um, and then, you know, over time, um, things were getting worse by Islamophobia. And also, um, you know, Mayor Hatut was um, struggling with health issues. He had cancer and eventually passed away, God bless his soul. But I think he realized at the end of his life that things had gotten so bad, um, and he realized how important the professor's voice was that he really wanted at that point to try and bring him more often. So he invite, you know, made a point to make sure that the sheikh would come more frequently, 
um, to give khutbahs and more frequently to give um, talks on you know various lectures and things um, and even honored him with the Muslim um, Achievement Award um, or, you know the, the award that they give you know every year to honor a person or not um, and at the end you know not many people know this because I was actually there and I can testify to it on his deathbed he actually told Sheikh that he wanted him to be to carry on the intellectual legacy you know he wanted he felt that what Sheikh had to offer was something that the Muslim community needed. Um, but what was difficult is that a lot, you know, the well had been poisoned. And it was difficult because a lot of people really just believed that Khalid Abu Fadl was not someone that was, you know, um, for whatever reason, um, should be someone at the Islamic Center of Southern California as a constant um, presence or as a scholar that would contribute to the intellectual health of the community. So when Maher passed away, um, actually, you know, even Sheikh gave a really beautiful eulogy and, and lecture and talk at the Islamic Center to honor him. And very quickly, um, people in the community started to assume those leadership positions. And, you know, they, they did want the Sheikh to give, um, you know, lectures and khutbahs, um, but they couldn't bring themselves to offer more than, you know, a one time a month khutbah. If that, actually, we offered for, for, I think, the last year or two before we left Los Angeles, um, he was given, I think, eight khutbahs in a year. And then um, the year after that, maybe eight or nine. So about, you know, less than a dozen, less than once a month. Um, and, you know, every time we would go, we would make the point to go. And it was hard for us because, you know, we lived in, in Thousand Oaks, which was, if again, if you know the, the geography, you know, it's like more than an hour drive at that time of the day. Um, and for us to kind of stop everything we're doing and drive, you know, and go for a half hour khutbah, you know, downtown, I mean, it was a big effort, but we did it because we felt, well, this is important. And people would come up um, afterwards and say, Sheikh, I love your khutbahs. I only come when you give the khutbah. Um, and because everybody else's khutbah um, is just really, you know, doesn't compare. Um, and so that's why we kind of kept going, is we felt, well, it's important, you know, even if the people who really, you know, appreciate you come, we, it's worth it, you know, we, we should do that. So then we arrive, we started in the meantime, um, the Suli Institute, because we felt like, well, you know, you have so, such an important message to say, because, you know, you just don't hear this, what you say in khutbahs anywhere. And you're only allowed to speak at the Islamic Center, you know, once every month or two. And it feels really wrong because things were just getting so bad for Muslims. Um, again, you know, Islamophobia raging. And so we had this Suli Institute, but he, we didn't really give khutbahs at that time. And so I think Sharif and I and several other people were like, you know, really it would be wonderful for you to think about giving the khutbah. So he slowly um, decided to do that. We decided to make it virtual. Um, and so if you go back to our website, you'll see that there's a little history about why we did it virtually because a lot of people were just angry going to the mosque. You go to the mosque and you listen to the khutbah and it sucks and you go home and you're angry. And that was what was happening to us is every time we would go to the mosque, every time we go to Eid prayer, it's like you would listen to the khatib and you'd leave angry because what you heard was just ridiculous and stupid. Um, and we thought, well, there's no point in going to the mosque just to get angry and leave. So it's like, okay, well, let's have our own space where you can say whatever you want and you don't get limited to 30 minutes a time and you, you know, and this is really important. So we started doing that and, and 
you know, the, the sheikh talks about how he was very hesitant to do that, and, you know, you can find out in the very first virtual chuppah that we gave um, the history of that, and that was January of 2019, a year before COVID. So then um, we continued, though, the days that he was invited, he would go um, to the Islamic Center in person. So then ultimately came, um, you know, Mohammed Morsi, and I mean, certainly the Arab Spring, Mohammed Morsi, um, you know, taking office in Egypt, and then um, the, the coup that, you know, and landed him in jail, and, um, and then eventually, you know, his death. So Sheikh followed all of that and wanted to comment on it because the Friday that he was supposed to show up at the mosque um, coincided with the death of Mohammed Morsi. So he just asked, you know, I would like to um, have us do Janazah prayer um, because. You know, he's a human being and he is, you know, died in a horrible way. Um, and of course, this was something that we knew would potentially cause issues. We were friends with the, the Imam there, um, Asim. So Asim, we felt, okay, we should let Asim know. So he can just, you know, we know it's going to get sent up to the ranks and whatever. And so Asim was, of course, freaked out when we suggested we wanted to do that because he knew how they would respond. And sure enough, they came back and said, no, we don't want to do that. And by the way, if you're thinking about talking about Muhammad Morsi in your khutbah, don't. Because they knew that there were a lot of very wealthy Egyptian donors that wouldn't appreciate that, you know, people who were supporters of Sisi. And, you know, Sheikh's comment was, you know, I'm not going to be told what I can and can't talk about in the khutbah, so thank you very much. I am not going to come. Um, but all of that, ironically, the communication between the Islamic Center um, if it was first it was through awesome and then awesome was like you know please this is my job and I I can't you know I don't want to be in the middle of this and so please can you know if, if you have issues then you should speak directly with the board so what ended up happening is all of the communication that ended up in Sheikh being uninvited from the mosque and never coming again happened not person to person not brother to brother not board member to Sheikh um, but through social media. So we were given a message um, on Facebook. I guess you know there was some some exchange on social media about how Sheikh is not going to be giving the khutbah today because of you know what happened with Muhammad Morsi. Um, and so you know we, we made a comment about that and the Islamic Center of folks didn't like that. So then they put out their official statement on social media and that was that. That was the end of a relationship that began decades before with Merhatut and the Abul Fuddles. So, you know, when you think about that, and again, this is like, you know, if you ask anyone else, this is my testimony, this is my personal, this is what I will tell God happened, because that's what I saw through my eyes. I'm not speaking in an official capacity. I'm just saying this is what I saw and what I dealt with and what I interacted with. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, it's something that causes a tremendous amount of pain at a personal level, because it's like, this is, you know, your family, your Islamic family, presumably, you know, you've been in this community for decades and decades. And by the way, you know, we've, I've talked about previously, you know, we were never included in social events. We we're not invited to Eid gatherings. We we're not invited, you know, to anything. Actually, we were quite lonely when we were in LA. So we were happy actually to, to we sort of left, I think, under the radar. A lot of people maybe there still think we're there. Um, and, you know, so it hurt to say, okay, you know, this is how we end this, this you know, relationship. But more importantly, it hurt because, you know, Sheikh wanted to honor a Muslim who had done a lot with Janazah prayer, 
wanted to speak to his the injustice that he confronted and they shut him out completely because they didn't want to i mean god knows my my thinking is because they didn't want to upset their rich donors so when you know so if people wonder why it keeps coming up again and again islamic center southern california that's some of the history um and you know and also um so the little facebook post that i saw you know that i mentioned at the beginning of my talk kind of inspired me to go back and just look again at the islamic center of california and the chuppahs that they're giving because currently you know the people who are giving their chuppahs are a dentist a medical doctor a businessman who owns like a sporting uniform uh you know um store um a journalist and a f an engineer and some other folks um and although, you know, and, and if you go, they've done a nice job of updating their website. So it looks a little bit, you know, cleaner and, and more fancy. Um, and they have listed, you know, and provided the links to the recordings of all previous khutbahs, even back to Mayor Hatut. But guess who's missing? Khalid Abul There are no khutbahs by Khalid Abul on the Islamic Center of Southern California web website. Um, there are a couple of lectures that he's given, like on the Sunni-Shi'i divide. Um, there's, you know, in the top in the area of hot topics and current events, they do have a couple of his things, and they have no problem listing him as one of their speakers. So, to the extent that I think they can, you know, acknowledge in that way for whatever that's worth, that's great. But the worst part of it is I was curious enough to listen to the chuppah from Friday, um, given by um, the dentist. Um, on the topic of, I think, actually, I'm not even sure. It, he was talking about Surah Al-Fatah, and I made, I think I made my way through about half of it, and it was just so painful because it made me realize that, and, and it's a typical chutbah, and there's nothing special about it. It's just like, you know, our role is to turn to God in times of need, in times of stress. We have to pray, you know. I mean, it's just basically what you would expect and probably what you hear in most places. And it made me realize, because we've covered Surah Fatah here in depth, and you know, it's like when you're listening to someone who's completely out of their depth and is, are not, is not a scholar, um, but is trying to just give you some impressionistic things about what this Surah had to say, and trying to you know, tell people that the Quran is valuable for their life. Um, it made me aware that it's like, you know, there, there's this level of dishonesty that takes place that we all sort of accept. And I didn't understand it as well until now we've gone into 67 surahs and are in the, you know, in Surah Baqarah, our 68th surah. It's like when you go into these spaces, there's a assumption that other people, you know, you probably don't know the Quran that deeply. And so you assume that the people that are speaking to you from, you know, the, the minbar are, are giving you knowledge that you might not otherwise have. And so you don't really want to admit that you don't necessarily know something. Like now when I hear him talking about Surah Fatah, I'm like, oh my God, are you kidding? You know, you're not saying anything that anyone wouldn't get from just reading an English translation. I mean, literally that's it. You can just open to any English translation, read it, you'll get more than what was conveyed in that chutbah. Um, but no one wants to admit it. And no one wants to even challenge that a dentist is telling me about my faith, you know? and. If it's not the dentist, then next week it'll be the medical doctor, and next week it'll be the engineer. And, you know, it's not like the people, this is the face of Islam. 
You know, this is not like someone saying, hi, I'm a dentist, I'm just gonna share my reflections with you, which would be honest and which I would respect. And then I could handle like, okay, these are the verses that meant something to you, this is how you understood it, that would be more meaningful to me. But when someone stands up and says, let me tell you what the Quran says about this, and this means that God is telling you this, he's presenting himself as a scholar. And that, knowing now what I know after what I've learned here, is offensive to the core. And I am like enraged the more I feel like I learn and I see how beautiful this tradition is and how much it has to offer. And then I go back and I listen to what people are getting in the mosques and I feel like just enraged. This is what we're doing to our religion. This is how we're disrespecting the Quran. This is why we are where we are and no one is speaking up because they themselves have not even thought, well, maybe I should learn more about the Quran. So I, you know, I'm still just sort of a ball of emotions and trying to process it. But you know, all of these things in, in sort of the context of, okay, how, what's the solution? How, where do we, how do we change this? And it starts with basic education, just people you know, learning more about what the Quran has to offer and maybe not having people in positions of power that continue this impression like they know so much and let me tell you what it is and then you hearing it and being so unimpressed that you're like, okay, well obviously the Quran has nothing to offer me because that shuts the door uh, to things like what we're doing here. And that's, that's just simply wrong. Um, but I think at a minimum, what we as Muslims can do, even if we don't know very much ourselves about the Quran, I think we can interrogate people and demand a little bit of honesty. Okay, so if you're up here and you're giving the khutbah, you're a dentist. Are you giving us your opinion based on, you know, or are you a scholar? And I think we should ask people, okay, you're an engineer. Why are you talking about the Quran? Are you a scholar? Why are we not having scholars appear? You know, say who you are, say what your qualification is, say what your perspective is that you're presenting so at least people know what they're getting and then they can decide whether this is something that they should take as true to Islam or not. I mean, I think that is a very, you know, basic place to start. Um, but I really pray and hope, I mean, I feel like the more we know about what we're getting here, it's just the, the onus is on us to really let people know that one that it exists that we should demand more um and you know that we should care about what the Quran has to say so and whatever way we can do that we should so that's it i just wanted to get that off my chest thank you for hearing me vent um and i'm really excited about another session of surah al-baqarah thank you so much اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على محمد وعلى اله واصحابه الطبع باحسان الى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل عقده من لساني يفقهوا قولي I think we stopped uh, at 195 not to cast ourselves onto ruin and as we said that it comes in the context the ayat right before it talks about warfare and talks about ad addressing aggression 
um, defensively. And, and we talked about the concept of a fitna as an unaddressed injustice because of its corrupting effect. Uh, fatana means to, to cause to go astray. The, the word itself, fatana, is what may, causes anything that causes anything to deviate. Um, so even if you mislead an animal and cause it to lose its way, that's a, that's a fat. Um, and then in usage, in usage, the, what emerges is that the, 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 the uh, worst poison, which was, they actually use that word, that uh, is an inducement to things going wrong are unaddressed injustices, including acts of aggression. If acts of aggression go unaddressed, and remember that this is also um, comes in the context of talking about punishment. So a punishment itself is addressing an act of aggression or addressing a wrongful act, addressing an injustice. And so the, the discourse on fitna is, and when the, the Quran tells us that in Qasas, وَلَكُمْ فِي الْقَصَاسِ that in the, in the principle of punishment, that there is the preservation of life, it goes back to that same standard that same dynamic that unaddressed aggression, unaddressed injustices become a source of fitna. And as we said, that they do so because ultimately people lose belief in the very concept of justice itself and the very concept of principles. Okay, and so then we got to the casting yourself onto ruin is not as so many Muslims take it, but casting yourself onto ruin is by failing to address aggression, by failing to address an injustice. And more specifically, in 195, is by failing to commit your resources this is the antecedent phrase before so the, the, the introductory phrase 
it tells you that the commitment of resources um, in the way of God, which is as a as a as a phrase, fi sabilillah, it is is always for whatever is Islamically endorsed as praiseworthy or as moral. So, addressing an aggression, uh, writing an injustice, uh, even as some have said that spending money so that there is a proper. Um, legal mechanism to address crimes or address wrongful acts would qualify as visa and but I agree with those that said the the entire discussion is premised on the concept of birr and so everything that all its spending that goes to upholding what the Quran identifies and defines as birr, which we've talked about, it is all a form of addressing an injustice. So I don't remember who was it said that the existence of orphans in society that are uncared for or the existence of the masakin in society that are not taken care of or the existence of abiri sabir in society that are not taken care of the displaced people as we said is indeed a form of fitna and it is a very serious fitna okay And then we the one ninety six a fairly specific uh, specific legal prescriptions relating to Hajj and relating to the Al Hadi or the sacrifice that is made in Hajj and at what point you cut or shave your hair and what happens if someone is ill and unable to perform certain functions um, and so on and so forth and these are fairly detailed and address specific questions that came up as to how to complete al-hajj and how to and questions that came up about the relationship between hajj and umrah and how to complete umrah and whether umrah uh, is different substantively ritualistically from what you need to do at Umrah is different from what you need to do at Hajj. And these are addressed in 196. Let's move on to, because these are, we, we don't, 
I mean, the, uh, going over the technical requirements of Hajj is, is not it's not going to serve our purposes but let's go to 199 if you notice that ثم افيض من حيث افاض الناس واستغفروا الله ان الله غفور رحيم the the reason I'm flagging this is you know the um, Muhammad Asad uh, translates Afidu as surge. So Muhammad Asad says, and um, surge onward together with multitude of all the other people who surge onward and ask God to forgive your sins, uh, for God is most forgiving, and so on. Um, the, there is an occasion for this ayah. Because to tell people Afidu, go forth from where, or proceed from where people normally proceed, or surge from where people normally surge, you know, it may, raises the question, why do we need to be told to go where people go? Um, and the reason for that is that in... Meccan society, the aristocracy of Mecca would refuse, when it comes to standing at Arafat, they would refuse to stand with the common people. The aristocracy in Mecca would insist on cordoning off an area where mixing with the common people on Jabal Arafat was considered beneath them. And so the Quran comes and specifically addresses that and overrules it. So basically negates that practice. Now it is, uh, I mean it's interesting because um, if you've ever been in, in Mecca during the time that um, any important member of the royal family is uh, um, is there. This ayah always comes to mind because the practice that is followed currently in Mecca um, reminds me precisely of what the Quran condemned. The, the royalty do not mingle with the common person. And in fact, whole areas are cordoned off um, and blocked out. And prime real estate, I mean, even as Tarahat al-Malik, um, each king comes and builds a new Tarahat, but they're very distinctive and they overlook the entire Kaaba um, you know, just among the bucket list of things that are wrong in the way that we deal with our holy sites. Um, but the, so, anyway, so that you know that 199 is had a purpose and an intent uh, uh, behind it, and that is no special treatment, no special accommodations. Okay. 
जैन वर्स टू हंड्रेड फादर्स or sorry and continue to bear god in mind as you would bear your own fathers in mind or even a keener remembrance for there are people who pray to god to give them on gives them things on this earth and they ignore the hereafter there is also a reason for behind this area is that the pre-islamic practice is that after ramir jamarat after the stoning of the jamarat which in old inherited belief systems of the arabs and islam later on was that the jamarat represent spots where shaitan manifested in one form or another to hajar and with some different riwayat as to who the shaitan manifested to one thing and whether these are these spots represent something beyond that so there are some again not none of them are reliable that these are spot these are the spots where shaitan first landed when shaitan left heaven but anyway they symbolically rami jamarat symbolically like in the old biblical tradition when you throw a stone when you cast a stone it was a sign of condemnation throwing a stone not to hit someone but just even picking up a pebble and throwing it at someone's feet meant you disown this person you condemn and disown this person you disassociate for yourself from this person and in old near eastern practice this was it existed in the fertile crescent it existed in um, egypt it existed in sham um as well as in arabia that the casting of a stone symbolically meant a a repudi- repudiating someone and it, in old arab culture it would cause an ordinary eastern culture it would cause feuds that would go on for ages so when the symbolic act of throwing casting a stone at the spot symbolically it meant that you and especially seven stones it meant that you are repudiating shaitan 
or disassociating yourself from shaitan in every way at, for one stone for every day seven stones for seven days that's in existed pre-islamically and then islam came and endorsed the practice um and so on but in old pre-islamic culture after uh casting the stones which is not clear whether arabs really believe that it's repudiating repudiating shaitan but they would cast the stone there's evidence that they believed it was good luck as opposed to what islam comes and endorses that it is a repudiation of shaitan anyway so then they would uh, the especially the poets the famous poets would gather and recite poetry um, which is basically bragging about their lineage and the achievements of their ancestors so it's basically using poetry to say my ancestors are the greatest and it was a rather odd practice, I mean, but a well-established practice that you, you do hajj, you cast the stones, and then right after, you get together for people to brag about their tribe, their ancestor, their lineage, uh, who they descended to, uh, who they descended from, and so on and so forth. And as those of you who know something about this old classical Arabic poetry, all the poetry had a certain format. It would start was, you know, it, it had sections. It would the section that bragged about horses, that talked about horses, a section that would talk about uh, love, who, whoever the poet loves, then a section that would talk about the achievements in battle and then talk about how their ancestors or their lineage is superior to the other and in this ayah first the Quran repudiates this practice it instructs Muslims not to take part in the, this bragging ceremony and that the only appropriate thing post-Hajj is to continue with the intensity. So that's why it says, as the, remember God as much as you remember your parents or remember your fathers. What's talking about is not, it's talking about the, that process of bragging in poetry about your parents or about your fathers. So it's saying it is God that should become the focus of your attention. Hajj is not, and again, the, the, all the commentaries on this, is that Hajj is not simply performing of a, a, a series of rituals and then your life goes back to normal. 
Hajj is a reinstallation or reinstilling yourself in yourself the imperative of Allah being the center of your consciousness. It's like, you know, when you talk about the, the khutbah that I gave, what is your in your consciousness? Well, to what extent is Allah part of your consciousness? And in the same way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that our feelings towards God should be more genuine and our love for God must be more genuine than our love for all else, including our parents, our children, our spouses. And it's a high standard. I mean, so it's a standard that you work towards. And as we said before, that you are not, as Allah says, that you will not attain birr. Well, let me, you will not attain, the, it is impossible to attain love without first attaining birr, uh, love of Allah. And it is impossible to attain birr unless you perform the acts that birr requires. And acts that relate to material things and acts that relate to worship and zikr, both. Hajj, everything in Hajj is designed to get you to reflect upon the reason you're on earth, your relationship to your maker, and indeed to the cosmos. That's why we go around the Kaaba, sort of imitating the principles of revolution, of, of revol revolution meaning going around in creation. That Allah made the logic of creation is we revolve around Allah as everything revolves around the center. Ibn Arabi writes a lot about this, the, the, the secret of secrets, as he calls it. That if you understand the concept of revolution, if you, if you understand the, the truth of revolution, how everything in existence, it, it's one secret that opens, opens up onto another secret. And each secret is a level of understanding the center and how what goes around the center anyway that, that's a um, an extended topic <clears throat> that so everything it has is understanding or reflecting upon your existence your relationship to your maker your relationship to creation and a reaffirmation inside yourself of everything that bitter entails. So, so much of Hajj is geared towards the affirmation of equality, loss of status, loss of class, loss of lineage, 
that, that is why we all dress the same. That is why we are not allowed to draw attention to ourselves through any refinements or any luxury. Um, you know, of course, Muslims corrupted things by building these luxury hotels in Mecca, but that was entirely at odds with the purpose of Hajj. You're not supposed to stay in a luxury hotel if you go to Umrah or Hajj. You're, you're supposed to be, to whatever you enjoy, the least capable of you financially must be able to enjoy. And remarkably, you find that in all the books of fiqh. But all these great imams that fill the airs everywhere, no one talks about this. And Grace is talking about, you know, why exclusion from Islamic spaces? Because a dentist or a, or a medical doctor so has no clue. They have no clue. They're clueless. But, subhanAllah, I mean, although this is an ingrained part of our fiqh, and it has been a part of our fiqh for 1400 years, uh, all it took was someone that calls himself king this and king that and khadim this and khadim that to just decree and will that we are going to have luxury hotels in Mecca and everyone can't shut up. I mean, all the Dar al-Ifta and all the Saudi Imams and, and I've had discussions where I've asked point blank when I was in Saudi Arabia, a Saudi judge, I was a guest of, back then, you know, bygone days, I was guest of SEMA, the Saudi Monetary Fund. And so, of course, I had immunity, I had protection. So, you know, I could talk about things. That, but the judge, when I asked him about it, I said, you know, in Hanbali Fiqh, it is the, the least capable person, that's the standard for Hajj. So we're all supposed to eat what the least of us is capable of eating and sleep where the least of us, so none of us are allowed to indulge. And his response to me was, don't, don't talk about this, don't talk about this. Okay, notice the, um, just the completion of verse 200. Um, the general refrain that I, I mean, it hardly needs comment that, um, those who their their hearts are so dunya prone that um, even when they they turn to Allah and ask Allah for help, it's usually over matters that has to do with this dunya and uh, praying for the for the akhirah is an afterthought. Okay, then let's move on to 204. Uh, 204, there are kind of people
Muhammad Asa translates it as, whose views on the life of this world may please you greatly. And the more so as this person cites God as witness to what is in his heart as, and is, more, is moreover exceedingly skillful in argument. But whenever this person prevails, he goes about the earth spreading corruption and destroying tilth and progeny, and God does not love corruption. Uh, it is reported, and Allah Alam, but it is reported that this verse, there, there are two uh, different um, genres. Some said that it was revealed about a man called Al-Akhnas bin Shurayyuk al-Saqafi, and other reports said that it um, uh, was about Sahib bin Sanan al-Rumi. Both individuals, in the context in which the, the, the revelation of um, 204, I, I'm not sure whether, in fact, the attribution or the the claim that these verses were about either Al-Akhnas uh, or uh, Suhaib bin Sanan, uh, whether, in fact, it was an afterthought, sort of a, 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 a conclusion that got placed into a riwayah about an occasion of revelation um, because the verses are are the are broad and applicable to any such situation and it it's self-evident I mean it, it hardly needs comment but the a, a phenomena of um, People who are eloquent, and especially if if it is about Al Akhnas uh, Ibn Saqafi or Ibn Saqafi, um, a gifted poet at the same time, um, and who claims to be well intentioned. And, and is constantly speaking pietistic talk and saying, God knows what's in my heart, God knows what's in my heart. But ultimately, when it says, So, I mean, you could, when they are in a position of responsibility or when they are in charge, what they do, their actions, are thoroughly inconsistent with everything they talked about. And the, the ayah gives a rather a, a concrete, objective um, uh, assessment of their actions, is that once in charge, by saying corrupting, Tilth and progeny means the 
consistent commission of injustice, that they usurp what is not theirs, that they commit injustice, that they ultimately seek to enrich themselves or promote their own interests once in power or once put in charge. Um, aside from the historical context of these ayat, subhanAllah, I mean, it, it, it is, um, it's like all moral principles. Moral principles, unless they are received by a a, an upright, diligent moral agent, they very much amount, could very much amount to nothing. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us there are charismatic speakers, there are speakers that will speak in terms of lofty principles or in, even we might go further and say in terms of pietistic talk. And will use, because when Allah says that وَيُشْهُدُ اللَّهَ عَلَى مَا فِي قَلْبِهِ That means they in fact use a reference to Allah in furtherance of their causes. In our language today, they use religion. They engage, I mean, what does Yushudullah ala ma fi qalbi mean? It, it, it means that they exploit religion. They are exploiting the concept of God in order to earn your trust, earn your belief. But when Ultimately, you look at the consequences of what they do, because when placed in charge, فَإِذَا تَوَلَّ And it doesn't mean فَإِذَا تَوَلَّ if they turn away, as some have said. فَإِذَا تَوَلَّ means when they are placed in charge. Their concrete acts are not, are inconsistent with fair dealing, are inconsistent with principles of equality or fair consideration, are inconsistent with fair process, in a nutshell, acts of injustice. And, you know, it's remarkable because this is the our revealed Quran, and when you look at Muslims everywhere, it is not an exaggeration to say that in Muslim country after Muslim country, the biggest problem is that duality of talk, that while our Muslim societies are plagued by so much corruption, so much injustice, the, the way rulers and people in power employ Islamic speech the, the exactly, precisely, as this ayah describes. Now, clearly, the, the problem is not that the Qur'an didn't warn us, but the, so it is not the text that's the problem, because the Qur'an did warn us. 
And in fact, as far as I know, this is the only religious text that warns you so explicitly about this. Basically saying, you know, watch out for charismatic rulers or charismatic leaders who, in fact, when you look at their actions, they're unjust. Um, then the problem is in the receiving moral agent. And regardless of the moral principle, if it's entrusted to a corrupt agent, it will yield corrupt actions. It's not, you know, text doesn't magically transform anything. Text is a principle, but it is a principle that is applied, understood, comprehended, and digested, and ultimately applied by always an agent that serves this text. Um, I mean, the, the folks that used to comment about the corruption of, a lot of our scholars would always write, like Muhammad al-Ghazali, like Hamad al-Ghazali, and so many others, Ibn Taymiyyah and, and Ibn Qayyim, I mean, they would always say things about, they write things about, you know, how uh, their age is so corrupt and that um, they, they would always uh, uh, express so much sorrow and regret about how these ayat has become ignored by Muslims. I wonder what they would have say if they came to our day, day and age. Um, I mean, if they thought they had it bad. Okay. Then Yeah, I, I would be remiss if I didn't also flag وَإِذَا قِيلَ لَهُ اتَّقِ اللَّهِ أَخَذَتْهُ الْعِزَّةُ بِالْإِسْمِ فَحَسْبُهُ جَهَنَّمُ وَلَبِئْسَ الْمَهَادِ 2.06 And if they're called to their conscience إِذَا قِيلَ لَهُ اتَّقِ اللَّهِ So they're called to their conscience. They told, fear God. Meaning that they become defiant. Now, the reason I flag this is that it doesn't take a genius that if you reflect upon this ayah, the Quran is identifying a phenomenon that's problematic. People who have charisma, people who misuse religion in, in their speech, people who, when they're put in charge, they do corrupt things, and people, when they are reminded or, or they are confronted with critical speech, they respond to that through izza and ism. Izza is high and mighty arrogance, and ism is by committing further injustice. It doesn't take a genius 
to understand just from this that if the Quran is telling you this is a, a problematic dynamic, so A, to say, well, if I want to implement, if I want to be true to the Quranic prescriptions, if I want to, in fact, address what the Quran identifies as a problem, A, I must, it must become an organizing principle in my society to guarantee the right of people to, in fact, direct critical speech to the unjust without suffering undue consequences. Because if Allah says it's a problem that these people, when you tell them, fear God, when you tell them, in other words, you're doing wrong, their response to, me, to you is to commit further injustice. So if you, we could say, oh, that's really interesting. Okay, let, and let's move on. Let's just ignore it. And this is exactly what Muslims have done. And repeat the, the silly discourse about, well, you know, if you give counsel to an unjust ruler, do it in private, which is completely, clearly fabricated. I mean, it's, it's infantile that there are Muslims today that still think that the Prophet ﷺ actually said that, that when you try to correct an unjust ruler, do it in private. It's infantile. I mean, it, it, is, it blows my mind that there's still Muslims who are at, at that level but anyway, so if, but if we want this Quranic discourse to actually not just be rhetoric, not just be dictum, dictum meaning speech that has no impact, no consequence, no effect, if we want it to be meaningful, then what do we do? It is not just, it's not enough to just tell people, well, just be aware of it. What you do is that you dis deduct from it an organizing principle. What is the organizing principle? Processes, institutions that would ensure, A, that people can tell those in charge, in using Quranic language, i.e., you're doing wrong. Why are you going to tell them, fear God? Because you want to criticize them for doing wrong, right? But it is very unfair to say, do it at your own risk, which is the attitude of modern Muslims. They tell you, oh, the greatest jihad is a word of truth before an unjust ruler. Okay, yeah, it's a greatest jihad, but you're telling me, me individually, to bear the risk on my own, which is unfair. But so what happens is that everyone ignores the greatest jihad because people don't want to suffer the consequences. But if you don't want people to ignore the greatest jihad, what do you do? You do what the entire civilized world does. Create institutions geared, designed to enable people, if they so wish, to tell those in power, when they are unjust, 
and not suffer consequences. Because if the consequences, I'm going to be arrested and tortured, there is a man, this is a very famous incident. Mubarak was a Hajj, the former president of Egypt. This is a real story. It's not, it's not even exaggerated. He was a well-known man. He just passed, he passed away last year. So this poor man saw Mubarak at Hajj and he got it in my mind, he got it in his mind to just, he, he somehow got close enough to Mubarak to just say to him um, something to the effect of that he used to be ex-military, this man a part of the Egyptian army, and he said something to the effect that, uh, you know, there is so much corruption committed by the military, uh, Rais, you know, uh, oh, grand president, your majesty, whatever, fear God. That's all that happened. It was public, everyone was aware of it, it was reported in papers, everything. This man was promptly arrested by Saudi authorities, turned over to Egyptian authorities. He was jailed without charge from for 20 years until Mubarak was overthrown, okay? He was released in 2011 after Mubarak was overthrown. He appeared on a few Egyptian programs where he would told his story about how all he did was tell Mubarak al-Taqillah and he ended up being in prison for 20 years without charge. There were clear signs of severe torture on him, including part of his skull was collapsed because they have given him a head injury and it was clear that the head injury had, had not, had, had affected him because he was a bit, anyway. Uh, so he talked about how he was tortured, how he was, so on. So he's released 2011 when Mubarak is overthrown and then when Sisi launches his coup in 2013, this man is re-arrested. He's re-arrested, and then he died in prison. Just because he dared to tell Mubarak, So if someone comes and says, oh, I'm a pious Muslim, and this dynamic is okay with me, I say, you have betrayed the Quran. Because when the Quran gives me this refrain, it's not telling me, let people sacrifice themselves. It's telling me it is your obligation, you Khalid Abul Fadl, it's your obligation to work towards the creation of institutions that would allow this person to say what they said to Mubarak and not have their life destroyed in that way. That's what I'm saying. This is, 
in other circles, ya alam, in other circles, what I'm saying is so elementary, it's a little bit embarrassing. I mean, in other circles, other people would say, yeah, so, okay, of course, obvious. It pains me that this is forward thinking in Islamic circles, because it's not. It's just obvious thinking. It's the ABCs of giving a text effect, of translating a text from principles to a program of action. Okay. Then notice 208. Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu tkhulu fi silmi kafa wala tattabu khatawati shaytan innahu lakum aduun mubin. This is another extremely powerful articulation and it's no coincidence, as you notice, again, you had a bunch of Quranic, specific Quranic legal prescriptions about Hajj, and right away it's followed by a return to principles. As I keep saying that the Quran consistently does this. It talks about specific law, then it pulls you back to principles. It talks about specific laws, and then it pulls you back to principles. It, in this is a philosophy itself. Okay, so Muhammad Asa translates this, and this is it is difficult to translate. So he says, "O you who have attained faith, surrender yourselves wholly unto God." What he's translating is, "Ya ayyuha Okay, so Silm, you notice the similarity between the word Silm and the word Islam. Silm literally could mean peace, repose, tranquility, this is sort of the, the first level of meaning. Second levels of meaning would be to surrender. So if someone surrenders to you, you say istaslama. Means, and the, 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 the reason surrender is, is derived from that meaning is that the idea of surrender sort of developed from the concept of peace, tranquility, repose. So in other words, the end of conflict. That that was the 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 way that the etymology of the of the word was, or the history of the of development of meaning. So okay. So Obviously the Qurans could have said All of you enter into Islam. But it doesn't say that. But it says, "Utkhulu fi silmi kafa," and I, 
I wouldn't have translated it as surrender because contextually, grammatically, surrender would not be the most obvious meaning. The most obvious meaning is to is clearly it, this has something to do with what Surat al-Baqarah is talking about generally and and the whole thrust of Surat al-Baqarah is how Islam is the new covenant and it comes as a correction to what came before it and it comes right after there is a evolving dynamic discourse that corrects a number of whether superstitious beliefs that uh, about Hajj, whether um, inequitous practices like um, bragging about your forefathers uh, or uh, maintaining privileged spaces in, um, after the Rami al-Jamarat, um, and after warning about, after addressing these specific laws, going back again and talking about general moral principles and warning about the way that people misuse speech and misuse God and their relationship with God to create corruption and so on and so forth. And then it comes at this point and says, Ya ayyuhal nas, udkhudu fissilmi kafa. Wa la tattabu khatawata shaytan. So, as-silm, literally, so it enter into a moral state that would be conducive to a moral state of peace, repose, tranquility, being at peace with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, being in a meaningful relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But notice the context of this ayah is that this relationship and it says it's talking to all people, human beings. And this follows after the Quran has instructed us about something about criminal penalties, about how law is supposed to preserve life. Law is supposed to preserve life, protect life. Law is about, as we said, so then it comes and says, okay, well, enter into the state. Well, what is the state? It's a moral state. And it's further explained by it is in contradiction to or the opposite of following in the footsteps of shaitan. So, fusilmi kafa. I don't remember who is it that I'm, I'm suspecting it might have been Hamad al-Ghazali who says this, but I'm not sure. But it's been um, that 
he's he talks about whether there's a distinction between when Allah says enter in sin and between birr, the state of birr. And he concludes that no, they're not different. They're indistinguishable. He has a long discussion. But I would put it that enter into a moral state in which you uphold the principles that have been imparted to you to date by the Quran and Surah Al-Baqarah, obviously, more specifically, which includes an understanding of your relationship to the law. So Silm is if you relate to the law the way that the Israelites did and the way that modern Muslims do, it's not that's contrary to Silm. You you will not attain tranquility because you do, because you fundamentally don't understand your relationship to Allah or the point of the law. The law itself will inflict a considerable amount of injustice and suffering upon you, and you will be unable to change it or do anything about it. The tyranny of charismatic people who've exploited religion is contrary to Islam. The despotism of those who attain privilege and impose privilege upon people is contrary to Islam. So when Allah invites us to enter into the Islam, the best way to understand it is not following in the footsteps of the shaitan, as the ayah itself says. Well, what is encompassed by following in the footsteps of shaitan? It's everything that the demonic represents in our life. And remember what we said when we encountered that very same expression about following the footsteps of shaitan. Everything that causes instability for, or that causes um, um, alienation within families, that causes a, the, the alienation and uprooting of a human being, everything, even the corruption of earth and exploitation of earth in a corrupt fashion is contrary to sin. It's a, it's a, a, to, to borrow a word. It's like saying, "Enter into Nirvana." Of course, then it obligates you to ask the obvious question: What is required to achieve Nirvana? Because we often think that when Allah says, enter into silm, that Allah is saying, enter into a relationship with law. Pray X number of, the, X number of times a day. This is the way you fast Ramadan. This is the way, it, yes, it's all of that. But these are only means to an end. It's not the end. If nirvana is the end, to be in a state of repose and tranquility, 
to be in the mizan, in the equilibrium with your Lord, then it is a refrain that encompasses the entire morality that the Quran imparted to you. 2.10, um, verse 2.10 has generated a, a long, extensive, very interesting debate in Islamic theology. Um, I don't, I mean, I, I, I think it was an interesting historical debate, but not particularly relevant anymore. Um, the 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 crux of the the gist of the debate is that is the ayah saying and it's a grammatical debate in part but also a theological debate is the ayah saying um, do they expect God to come in a cloud to them accompanied by the angels to get the point. In other words, to set themselves straight. In a, a rhetorical question that would mean uh, pointing to the impossibility of God coming on a cloud accompanied by angels. To those particularly within various Sufi orientations who said that no, the idea of God coming um, if you know, uh, so Muhammad Asad is clearly from the first school. He says, "Are these people waiting per chance for God to reveal Himself unto them in shadows of clouds, together with the angels? Although by then all will have been decided, and unto God all things will have been brought back." But so the the key in Muhammad Asad's translation is that word per chance. But in a lot of Sufi orientations, they understood this ayah far more symbolically. And um, that the, the coming of God with angels is, is intended to be, this is actually what you should strive for. So that it's like for God to invade your heart and the cloud, the angels, God are all nestled in your heart. Anyway, it's a it's a long um, okay. So let's go to two thirteen. Um. كان الناس أمة واحدة فبعث الله النبيين مبشرين ومنذرين وأنزل معهم الكتاب بالحق ليحكم بين الناس فيما اختلفوا فيه. So this is 2.13 All humankind were once a single community. Then they began to differ whereupon God raised up the prophets as heralds of glad tidings and as warnings, and through them bestowed revelation from on high, setting forth the truth, so that it might decide between people with regard to all on which they had come to hold divergent views. 
Yet none other than the self-same people who have been granted this revelation began out of mutual jealousy to disagree about its meaning after all evidence of truth had come unto them. But God guided the believers unto the truth about which by God leave, God's leave they had disagreed. For God guides unto a straight, straight way the for God guides unto a straight way uh, the person that wills to be that God wills to be guided. Okay. The reason I pause at two thirteen is because of the very beginning of this ayah, that people were a were a a single people and then without the extrapolation of uh, then they began to differ because that's extrapolation but the literally people were a single nation and then God sent the prophets and messengers and sent books of revelation as the standard to guide them as to what they disagreed upon. Now, of course, this idea of Ummah Wahida, that people were but a single nation, and there is a very interesting discussion in the Islamic tradition. When Allah says but a single nation, is this a reference to a common origin that we all go back to the original human beings and a, a, a one people from which all evolved and human beings then diverged? Or is the Ummah Wahida a concept but not a reference to an actual empirical reality? So is, is Allah saying that people were come from common mother and father, Adam and Hawa, Adam and Eve, and then as their numbers increased and they started diverging and developing into different beliefs and so on, God sent prophets and messengers with revelation to reaffirm the standard of truth, the frame of reference for, for everyone. Or is the Ummah Wahida a, a concept like very close to the idea that developed in the West of the original position that there is a common truth that that represented and embodied the original state of human beings and this truth is innate to all human beings a natural truth to all human beings 
And it is when human beings deviated from the natural truth that then God started sending revelation in order to bring back to the natural truth. Now, those of you that know something about the Islamic tradition are not going to be surprised that the one who argued most strongly for the idea of an original um, that Ummah Wahida represents, it's a, it's a symbolic phrase representing an original truth common to all human beings, an innate truth of primordial truth and derivative truth from the primordial truth was someone like Qadi Abdul Jabbar in his magnum opus al-Mughni who argues very systematically and rigorously um, for idea, for that idea. But interestingly, um, even people who are just diametrically opposed to someone like Qadi Abdul Jabbar, like Ibn Taymiyyah, says, well, the very idea of a common ancestry that we all come from Adam and Eve, well, he takes it much more literally, but he says, but the there was a single unitary natural truth within the consciousness of Adam and Eve. And Ibn Taymiyyah talks about how the killing of Qabil um, um, and Habil, the one brother killing another, as symbolic to the aberration from that natural truth held within the consciousness of Adam and Eve. Um, my sense, although I can't point to it, to, I mean, I, it would take a lot, it would, I would have to go through the whole text to, to be able to, my sense is, a, is that someone called, like a Qadi Abdul Jabbar, the reason he didn't rely on the argument that Ibn Taymiyyah relies on that Adam and Eve had an innate truth that they were aware of and conscious of is, and again, I can't prove this, but my sense is that Qadi Abdul Jabbar um, didn't take the story of the creation of Adam and Eve literally. He, he thought of it as an anecdotal story. Now, of course, logically, we, we must have emerged from a man and woman at some point, somewhere, however, you know, uh, human beings are defined. But I, I, I mean, I've never was interested in settling this, this debate. Um, personally, I'm more than happy to accept that there was an Adam and Eve and that they were actual physical creations. And... If on the final day Allah says no, that it was just an anecdotal story, then I'm fine with that as well. Uh, you know, because ultimately, it it doesn't make a difference in in my conception of values, um, regardless. So anyway, um, but other than that, the uh, Ayah two thirteen says what what. It reads like a saying that 
all the revelation was sent, still human beings, the way they dealt with this revelation was disagreements that arose for egotistical reasons. Now, for me, whenever the Quran says this, and the Quran says this type of refrain, this type of warning, many times, I understand this not as Allah telling me about something in the past and now it's fixed, but Allah warning me personally about the role how corrupting the ego can be when it comes to religious doctrine. So the way I relate to the Quran when I read an ayah like this is that whenever I am um, whenever I am uh, uh, motivated to disagree with a scholar, with a colleague, I always interrogate myself if I am disagreeing because my ego is hurt. In other words, am I disagreeing because another scholar discovered something that I didn't discover? Am I disagreeing because someone articulated a theory that's brilliant that I had not thought of? The, 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 what actually drives a lot of academic disagreements, although we, you know, you, you don't get tenure um, because you agree with people. You get tenure because you criticize people. But that, while it could be a, a great inducement for critical thought, because it teaches people to think critically, but it also could be, a, it become a, a very dangerous egotistical game. In, in law, I don't know, if, uh, in the legal field, it's well known that 70% of the material published in law reviews, uh, law reviews is garbage. It's just performance. Um, academics just wanted to say something new. So they sound like saying something new. Whether it's practical, whether it's pragmatic, whether it's actually... But, but the other side, where people completely lack any critical insight because they're all being nice to each other, is not healthy either. So it, it's, again, like, like, like Allah teaches us consistently, the balance. The balance in everything, the mizan in everything. Okay. Two fourteen. Commentators on Ayah two fourteen. Um, the the most commentators say that this Ayah was and notice. Um, مَسَّتُمْ الْبَأْسَاءُ وَالضَّرَّاءُ وَزُلْزِلُوا حَتَّى يَقُولَ الرَّسُولُ وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا مَعَهُ مَتَى نَصْرُ اللَّهِ أَلَا إِنَّ نَصْرَ اللَّهِ قَرِيدٌ That the believers are inflicted with severe hardship, hardship that shakes them to the core. زُلْزِلُوا 
is literally means to be shaken. And it's like you, the hardship is, is so formidable that it shakes your core. And it shakes the core to the point you start thinking, when is Allah's victory? When is Allah's support? And notice here, there's something pointed out by not too many commentators, but until the Prophet himself and those who believe this includes people like Ali bin Abi Talib people like Abu Bakr people like Omar in other words the most illustrious of the companions but if so It is, it is not a lack of faith, but it's a psychological response that sometimes when you are tested so severely, it is nearly a, 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 um, a knee-jerk reaction within you to start thinking, when will Allah come to my aid? I mean, anyone that has had the displeasure of experiencing being tortured, uh, that's the stable, is that you, you, your, your mind, like, why so much pain? When is relief going to come? When is Allah going to help me? And that's not a lack of faith. And the reason I'm, I'm saying this is that uh, among those who are very conscientious, they, their response to trauma, when they disappoint themselves, those who are most conscientious are most unforgiving towards themselves. And, and God doesn't expect you to be unhuman it is it is how what you do with these reactions later on as you get an opportunity to gather your sense that matters but to self-flagellate and to as you know some people who have been tortured and and they hate themselves so much for what they thought and what they felt and what they said when being tortured that upon their release they they feel like they betrayed god and their healing becomes far more complicated because of their sense of guilt about betraying god god doesn't expect you to be superhuman you haven't betrayed God. This is just a, a, an as automatic a reaction to trauma. Um, the zelzala, to be shaken to the core, is, is the way our nervous system is configured. It is what you do with that, with that reaction that matters. 
in the Battle of the Trench, because they say that this area, most sources say that this area was revealed in the context of the Battle of the Trench. If you, as you surely you remember, in the Battle of the Trench, Mecca forms an alliance with the most powerful Arab tribes and comes to invade Medina. And um, when Muslims dig a trench around Medina to act as a buffer between them and the invading forces, it is in a thoroughly desperate situation because Medina is entirely um, encircled. There, there, not, nothing is coming out or in Medina. So the, the threat of starvation is very real. And the threat and the trench was not, did not in fact go around all of Medina. But there was, it, it, they did not, the Jewish tribes would not allow them to dig the trench in their territory. So the, the Meccans could still come through the territory owned by the Jewish tribes, that's one. Uh, the other, the, there is a rocky plateau that they were, weren't were able to dig. It's, it's, it's a narrow plateau, but still, that had to be... So the anxiety and the hardship and the suffering was extremely real. And it is... Is I've always taken a considerable amount of comfort in when I hear Allah not 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 even reproaching, but gently noting that the Prophet and people who are far better than myself, uh, Alil Bayt and the companions. Um, that they experienced Zalzala and they wondered when Allah's victory will come. And if you are hard on yourself, this is something that gives you a great deal of comfort. يَسْأَلُونَكَ مَاذَا يُنْفِقُونَ كُلْ مَا أَنْفَقْتُمْ مِنْ خَيْرٍ فَلِلْوَالِدَيْنِ وَالْأَقْرَبِينَ وَالْيَتَامَى وَالْمَسَاكِينَ وَابْنِ السَّبِيلِ وَمَا تَفْعَلُوا مِنْ خَيْرٍ فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ بِهِ عَلِيمٌ Two fifteen is again. Notice the consistent theme now in Surah Al-Baqarah. Allah is addressing various issues that came up, and many of these issues are the introduction to them. Yes, alunak. They ask you. So it is a claim and a response, and an issue and a response. So it is not a code of law that is being prescribed, but set of prescriptions in response to issues that came up. When you have laws that are elucidated in response to issues that came up, there is an anecdotal process 
an anecdotal meaning, an illustrative process. Allah, one of the, yes, there is the prescription, but one of the things is Allah is teaching you as to these types of issues, what type of response is given. You can't ignore that dynamic. So here, when it says that they ask you, what should they spend? This, interestingly, it, it it's the issue is addressed in 2.15 and then later in Surah Al-Baqarah, the, the issue persists. So Surah Al-Baqarah comes back to it again. It's, it's very interesting that under these circumstances, Allah addresses the issue, but the problem persists. So Allah revisits the issue, as we will see, with greater specification and underscoring. Now, what is the issue that came up? So, part of the questions that came up was, okay, we are in rather these circumstances, dire circumstances. We had the Battle of Badr, we had the Battle of Uhud, we had a number of other smaller battles, and then we had the Battle of Tre the Trench. And the, the Battle of the Trench was uh, severely traumatizing because it included uh, the boycott or um, what is the word I'm looking for uh, where, where you embargo, embargo. the embargo uh, instituted against Medina so you, you no no material is going in or out of Medina after the battle of the trench there is a very real social issue that comes up Some of the, uh, some people of normal human reaction, but by but weak of faith, they react to this by saying, "Well, things are dangerous. Look at what we went through during the Battle of the Trench. Let's hoard. Let's let's save up. Let's make sure that my family has enough wheat, enough this, enough that." So, the phenomena of hoarding it, as a response to the conditions of war is one. Second, there is a, especially among the younger hot-headed Muslims, uh, younger blood, is an attitude of whatever money there is, it must go to the war effort and taking care of the poor and orphans and wayfarers, i.e. displaced human beings, um, especially Ibn Sabil or people who are, are, are coming by, passing by. So why should we spend money on them when 
these are war conditions. We should spend money on weapons. But there was also a third issue that came up. And that's the issue that the Quran revisits, that specifically. Is that a lot of Muslims who used to send money to non-Muslim relatives, in other words, they would financially take care of Muslims back either in Mecca or other areas, um, terminated these pay payments and said they are not Muslim, they're either they supported the hostilities against us or they didn't take a clear position supporting us, they, they, they were neutral, we're not going to send them money. And so all of these questions come before the Prophet and 2.15 comes and insists that the hoarding of money, that you have an obligation to take care of relatives, orphans, the poor, and Ibn Sabil, the displaced human beings or refugees, and Contrary to what develops in Islamic law later, where it tells you that, you know, first you take care of the relatives, and then the, the, then the uh, orphans, and then the poor, and then the uh, displaced, that comes sort of as part of the uh, the urbanization process and and, and also the, the building of empires in Islam where you sort of the the poor becomes the responsibility of the state even the orphans becomes the responsibility of the state and you have to worry about your relatives but in Quranic Islam you have a, the responsibility towards these categories are my, my, simultaneous and concurrent. So you can't let the wayfarer, someone who's passing by, starve and say, well, it's because I'm feeding my family, so too bad. You get to starve to death. Or you can't ignore the orphans and let them you know, become, turn to prostitution and, and say, well, because I'm taking care of my family. So one was the, 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 the 215 was clearly understood as banning or for saying that this hoarding practice has to end. And there are many things that developed from that. But two, re-emphasizing that the strengths of society is not, and this is in my, in my, my, in my language, that the strength of society is not in the types of weapons it, it buys, but in taking care of its weakest elements. That's how you build societies that can win wars. People who, who, are, who belong are willing to create miracles, to do miracles, because they feel they belong. And they don't have resentment because they feel they suffered an injustice. 
So it came saying, no, it's, it, it, conditions of war is, are, is not an excuse to ignore the orphans, the needy, the way, even the wayfarer. And that third problem, which is interesting, because that's the problem, although 215 is revealed, it was not um, solved. And that tells you the power of human emotions. Even after 215 came and it, it was clearly an instruction to know you, the money that you give to the poor, you continue giving even if you are angry at them because uh, they didn't support you in the war and so on. That problem continued to persist after the revelation of 215. And as we will see, Surah Al-Baqarah comes back to it, but comes to back to it with more um, emphatically. And we'll, we'll see. After the trauma of the Battle of the Trench, war, and especially defensive war, uh, and it's clear that the Battle of the Trench scarred or, or you know, left its scar on on the psyche of. Um, other than economic or financial uh, uh, harmful financial habits or economic habits, there was a clear. Among you know, of course, in 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 rehabilitated Islamic history, it, it, this is always people who express these views are always described as the hypocrites. But it's both people who were hypocrites, but also people whose face were not particularly like the companions, or like Ali Bit. I mean, people whose face were the face of average people, who started complaining about how long is this uh, war-like situation where we are expected to carry weapons and fight going to continue. So, Battle of Uhud, there was a limited number of Muslims who engaged in the Battle of Uhud. And it was a victory, and a decisive victory, and there was jubilance. Uh, sorry, Battle of Badr, not Uhud, Badr. Battle of Uhud was a defeat, but still, it was those who joined the army who engaged in the Battle of Uhud. In the Ghazwat al-Khandaq, everyone in society became involved because it was a, 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 a laying siege to Medina. So uh, the women, the children, you know, those who uh, were serious converts, those who were not serious converts, the, the hypocrites, everyone. And that's why there started a, the griping about um, these battle-like conditions or the, the war effort. And this is the occasion for 216.
is that, and it's, it's, it's remarkable, I mean, how the Quran deals with the psychology of people. Allah acknowledges that, Allah says, yeah, I know that being forced to fight, kutiba alaykum that kutiba alaykum, it will be decreed upon you to fight. Um, and you don't like it because it is you you see it as entailing sacrifices entailing harm entailing uh, pain entailing uh, but remember that what you think that there are many things that would feel unpleasant would you experience as pain, but are ultimately good for you. And and the opposite is also true. Things that you absolutely desire, but they're harmful for you. And if you are believers, you have to anchor yourself on the premise that Allah knows, but you don't know. So translate this. The principle is what? The principle is al fitna, that addressing injustice and addressing acts of aggression, repelling aggression. That's the principle. Now, the principle you might at times believe as later Muslims, especially modern Muslims. And the principle is that if you don't do that, you're casting yourself onto ruin. You're ruining yourself, basically. That you're destroying yourself. So if later on you start thinking that, you know what, defending ourselves, standing up for justice, standing up against wrong is unpleasant. It entails sacrifices. This is the ayah for you. Well, it is not up to you. Because if you believe in God, you believe in the principle that God taught you. And accepting that, yes, it entails sacrifices. Yes, you have to do it. But God knows what is good. It, 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 you know, people take this and you often hear... Uh, people applying it outside its moral um, tapestry, like saying, well, you know, maybe something, you know, someone does, oh, uh, maybe it's good for you and you, you know, you just don't realize it. Just, you know, don't think about it and trust in Allah and, and jump. It, it is not a, an invitation to fatalism. What it's saying is that the principles that Allah taught you, when the Prophet was alive, the Prophet could tell us what to do. But after he died, all we have are the principles. The principles that Allah taught you, you must persevere in applying them, even if it entails sacrifices and hardship and a great deal of unpleasantries. Including, for instance, now notice this comes right after the ayah 
that says, even in war, you have to take care of the poor. Why? Because what's if you are suffering hardship, you're suffering shortages, your natural inclination will be, well, I don't have money to give an orphanage this year. It entails, no, this year, you know, money is short. I'm going to cut back my donations to the orphanage. I'm going to, why? Because, you know, otherwise there'd be hardship. Well, then this ayah comes and tells you, no, the principle is commit yourself to the sacrifice. The principle is take care of the orphans, take care of the poor, take care of the wayfarer, even if it entails hardship. Because Allah knows what's good for you. That's how it should be applied. I can't tell you how many Islamic centers or just social context. You hear people just throw this ayah around and you just, you, you rush roll your eyes because it, it, education is a wonderful thing. I mean, if you, if you just, uh, if you have a, a, a solid or a, a reasonable education in the grammar and the history in the style in the in in the in the interpretive community or in, in communities of meaning that developed around the text then you know what this is talking about but if you're shooting from the hip you don't this is very important so just remember it because i'm sure in your lifetime you will hear people misapply it and if you can educate them on something so simple, it will be you'll be doing them a service. Two seventeen. Notice again. Yes, Alunak. They ask you, and they ask you about fighting in the sanctif in the. Uh, the sanctified months, Muharram, and Rajab, and Al-Ashur Al-Hurum. And again in 2.17, Al-Fitnatu Akbar Min Al-Qatl, Elsewhere, al fitnatu ashaddu min al-qatl. Here, al fitnatu akbar min al-qatl. The underscoring of that same principle that, yes, there are technicalities like the sanctified months, but repelling aggression, responding to aggression, because there was there were people, especially Meccans, the Muhajirun, who said, well, why can't we respond to aggression after the passing of the months? Now, only Allah knows what their motivations were. You know, whether they, you know, just didn't want to fight. And so, you know, okay, well, let the four months, let three months, it was three months, let the three, three months pass, and then we'll 
respond to the um, act of aggression perpetuated against us. And the companions of the Prophet said, no, we, we have to respond now. Because if, if four months from now, the, the message will get around that we're weak. And we are, and if the message gets around a week, we'll be taken advantage of. And this turned out, and then they asked, of course, the, the Prophet ﷺ, and the Quran came addressing this, saying, I've told you, al-fitna, failing to address an injustice, is worse than murder, which is the ultimate crime in the Quran. It's like saying failing to address injustice is murder. And, uh, and then, of course, the, the, the follow-up that they will, your enemies desire nothing less than to exterminate your faith, that they will want to continue fighting, they will want to continue fighting you until you completely abandon Islam. Um, and this is it's a, sort of a further elaboration upon why it is critical that you respond in the Ashur al-Quram and not wait around. Okay. Notice, again, 2.19, Yas'alunak, they ask you. Now, the question is about khamr, about alcohol, and al-maisar, gamble. And gambling. And the Quran concedes that there are people that enjoy drinking alcohol and that might profit from gambling. But tells Muslims but their ism, their sin is greater than whatever good comes out of them. A critical point. Yes, alcohol was uh, outlawed gradually, but this first revelation against alcohol and gambling, all those who were God-fearing Muslims, once they heard Allah saying that the sin that comes from them is greater than whatever good comes from them, abstained. It is not, you know, you, God can't tell you the sin is greater than whatever good unless you're, you don't care. And you say, well, I'll continue doing it anyway. Yeah, their sin is greater, so ultimately, in the balance of things, I'm, I'm earning sin. That's what it says, clearly. And so, the, the impression given that, oh, well, you know, first it was not really... It, no, it, 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 even after 219, the reliable reports are every worthwhile 
companion of the Prophet والسلام, swore off both practices. And notice it's not just alcohol, but it's also gambling. Because, of course, there are more Muslims that want to drink than gamble. So they, they focus on drinking and ignore the gambling part. Okay. Um, and also in 219, you just see how it is. Um, so, again, and they ask you, Maza yunfikun? This question. The Ashabul Sofa, the, the, these were the, the, the poorest migrants and poorest converts in Medina. And these were poor enough that they couldn't afford to buy homes. And most of them either lived in the Prophet's mosque, والسلام, or in, in a covered area next to the Prophet's mosque. So it's not an actual house, but it's like a common area with a roof. And a lot of the, the, the them and people who were not well off as well, would ask the Prophet with how much the Qur'an emphasized spending in, in Allah's way. They would come and say, well, what, what do we spend? So when it says, that العف means what, what, it's a remarkable expression because it's, it simultaneously means whatever you can spare, but it also means at the same time that whatever you spare in good spirits, in other words, you, 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 it, when you say it's like when someone says um, to you shukran, you say afwan, right? It, it is at the same time when you say al-af means it literally it means uh, uh, forgiveness, but but what it's idiomatically what it means is um, whatever you can spare in kindness and in decency. So uh, it is not. It, it's like whatever. What we're poor, we can't spend. Well, whatever you can spare financially. But it also simultaneously means you can also spend in acts of kindness. And so the, you've all heard the hadith of the Prophet that when you smile in the face of your brother, you get a hasna. Well, it was uttered in this context that, okay, if you don't have money to give, well, the least you could do is smile. Even if you don't have something to give, the least you can do is doing a dua for someone, going at, or making someone 
asking about someone, visiting someone, any act of kindness. It is um, one of the things that strikes me about the seerah is the, how often the reports, how frequent the reports of visitations, of companions visiting each other, or people in Medina visiting each other, uh, and, and the Prophet ﷺ constantly visiting people. This is something that no one has talked about. But it, it, it's, and it is precisely because that acts of visiting and, and, and caring are also acts of charity. But it is a, a type of charity in which you give up your money, your comfort, uh, sorry, you give up your time and your comfort. 2.20, again, um, the, the issue, again, they ask you. So, again, notice how many contextual laws, a claim and a response. So, here, the, the question is about orphans, the Qur'an had emphasized the caretaking of orphans and um, guardianship over them so much that one of the issues that came up was, well, if the an orphan who has an inheritance and the concern about the way that inheritance is being dealt with um, so can this money be uh, can we expend from this money with, especially with very poor families, uh, to uh, take care of the orphan himself uh, if they have an inheritance and it's in a, a family that's that can't afford uh, spending on the orphan from their own money, or can we invest the money for the orphan, and if and then some other technical legal issues like can a um, guardian who manages the money of an orphan who has a sizable inheritance uh, be paid a fee or paid a salary for managing the money of the orphan. These types of issues that came up. And the permit as two things, is that as to, the permission was, yes, you can spend of that money to take care of the orphan, and you can invest the money as long as it is not in speculative or dangerous investments that uh, 
because of the the duty you owe to to preserve the the, the money of an orphan uh, and so on and so th this was at the level of the technicalities of managing the finances of an orphan the, but the other part is that orphans have to be integrated in society so and there is some very interesting material here that if you are taking um, your children to a um, an, um, a, um, a, a horse race uh, then and you have at the same time you are a guardian over orphans you have I mean this is a specific issue that came up is that you have to take the orphan with the your children so in other words you you have to make sure that orphans don't feel left out in society now of course these issues were being addressed in the context of Medinian society and, and the dynamics of Medinian society, but you can clearly extrapolate the moral principles from that. Is it, it, we adopted, or when I say we mean Muslims generally, adopted the colonial practice of placing orphans in orphanages. Um, the first orphanage built was by during the French occupation of Egypt, and it was first in Egypt, and then it spread from there. Um, very common Western practice: you, you have orphanages, you put orphans in them, and the, um, of course, it's better than just dumping them in the street but both are not ideal orphans have to be integrated in families and in islamic law you, you, there you compel relatives even cousins so in other words uh, not just first degree relatives but second degree relatives and third degree relatives to take care of orphans a, lar a larger issue that that is you know and it uh, orphans have become a very serious problem and first in Palestinian societies for obvious reasons and but then now in Syria, in Yemen, in uh, the, the orphans among uh, the Rohingyas uh, is terrifying um, reality that the entire Muslim world ignores. No one cares about. Um, I mean, whenever you have a military conflict or you have displacement of populations, you have orphans, and. It, this is a um, a very serious moral issue. Okay. Two twenty one.
The main thing I want to say about 221, do not don't marry a mushrika is an unbeliever um, who ascribe divinity to, uh, to Muhammad Asad says do not marry women who, who ascribe divinity to art beside God until they believe for any believing bondswoman of God is certainly better than a woman who ascribes divinity to art beside God even though she pleases you greatly. And do not give your women in marriage to men who ascribe divinity out to God, ere they attain to true belief. For any believing bondman of God is certainly better than a man who ascribes divinity to art beside God, even though he pleases you greatly. Such as these invite unto the fire whereas God invites unto paradise and unto the achievement of forgiveness by God's leave and God makes clear God's messages unto humankind so that they might bear them in mind okay so the command is straightforward enough that you do not a Muslim woman the Muslim man does not marry a mushrika and a Muslim woman does not marry a mushrik. Now, of course, here there there is a as it developed in Islamic law, they understood mushrika here not as a Christian or a Jew. Um, although there was a minority school of thought that said, especially as to Christians because of their belief in the divinity of Jesus that they would count as mushrik so that that they insisted that or they argued that a Muslim woman should not marry a Christian man and a Muslim man should not marry a Christian woman but that didn't evolve to be the majority opinion the majority opinion became is that mushrik here me meant polytheists within the meaning of polytheists at the time of the revelation of the verse so a um, someone who is not a Christian or a Jew or a Sabian that would be the the mushrik that so an, a, a someone who believed in God but believes also in idols or in multiple deities and so on um, the reason I posit this uh, uh, verse is that there is an occasion that that it is reported um, that it was revealed about a man called Murshid al-Ghanawi. Um, and Murshid al-Ghanawi uh, re reportedly was in love with a, um, a girl called Anak. Um, some of the traditions say that she was a slave girl others say that she was a free woman either way whether slave girl or or otherwise Anak uh, was not a believer she was not a Muslim she was not a Christian she was not a Jew and that he was madly in love with her and he goes and he asks the Prophet for permission to marry Anak 
and that the ayah is decreed not granting uh, Murshid permission to marry Anna. And she refuses to convert, and so um, there's some very nice poetry uh, attributed to Murshid al-Ghanawi bewailing the fact that he couldn't marry Anaq. It's sort of heartbreaking, but anyway. Um, and then notice again, alunak. See how often, and they ask you, and they ask you in Surah Al-Baqarah. Because of this, the, uh, just remember that, because we'll come back to this whole treatment of contextual laws. And this time they ask you about a woman's menstrual period and 223 obviously um, the um, yeah um, so 223 and 224 first let's see how Muhammad as a translates so, in 2.23, your wives are your tilth. Go then unto your tilth as you may desire, but first provide something for your souls and remain conscious of God and know that you are destined to meet God and give glad tidings unto those who believe. Oh, sorry, I meant 2.22. Uh, what did it say? Um, so, other than not having... Intercourse. So, uh, so uh, this is 2.22. And do not draw near them until they are cleansed. And when they are cleansed, go to them or go unto them as God has bidden you to do. For God loves those who turn unto God in repentance. And God loves those who keep themselves pure. Your wife, then it says, your wives, and that your wives are your tells, go unto your wives unto them as you may desire and so on so nisaakum harthun lakum fa'atu harthakum anna shi'atu uqaddimu li anfusikum now the reason I posit this is that um There are, again, it's an issue that came up among um, among Muslims in Medina. There, the issue is not just as to the menstrual cycle, but this ayat that your your nisa'ukum harthun lakum that they or Muhammad Asad translates it as your tilth. Um, that um, the, in among reportedly among the Jewish tribes in Medina was a superstitious belief that if you approached or you have intercourse with a woman from 
vaginally but from the behind that the child born to to that will be cross-eyed so one it, it is said in reports that that this area was to debunk that belief that if you approach a woman vaginally from behind that uh, a child would be cross-eyed but there is um, another set of reports and that is a group of women approached the Prophet and complained that they are worried about the legality of their husbands approaching them vaginally from behind and that this ayah then comes as a response to that saying that there is nothing wrong with this and that expression in the ayah which is often not um, paid attention to وَقَدِّمُوا لِأَنفُسِكُمْ so so نِسَاءُكُمْ حَرْثٌ لَكُمْ فَآتُوا حَرْثَكُمْ أَنَّا شِئْتُمْ وَقَدِّمُوا لِأَنفُسِكُمْ so قَدِّمُوا لِأَنفُسِكُمْ Although Muhammad Asad just translates it as um, and first provide something for your souls. It's actually not that. Qaddimuni and Fusikum was that with the the um, I don't think it's a it's a it's a reference idiomatically to that if you have sex with with your wife from behind you have to do something that translates into emotional closeness so you're not as the Prophet said, so that you are not having sex with her as if she is cattle, like she's just an animal or 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 a repository of of some sort of desire. So it is not a small thing that so the the woman of the uh, the woman in Medina they come to the prophet and say we're we're concerned that the the about the legality of this and the Quran comes and says no there's nothing wrong with it but keep in mind because I'm sure that this happened that if what is going on because I'm sure again that this just that it is basically some men would fall upon their wives as if they're cattle, um, you know, just from behind and 
without emotional closeness. So it comes and says, anfuskum. So literally, if you want a literal translation, and engage in foreplay. It's, it's remarkable, right? Because it's, it's just, um, for the time, for the age, for uh, all of that, to, 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 for even the Quran to be, to, um, now, of course, there is, in, legally, there's an issue that is always discussed in this context of these verses, and that's anal sex. Whether the issue was simply approaching women vaginally, perhaps unemotionally, from behind, um, or whether also the issue is anal sex. And the majority opinion is that anal sex was not allowed, that it's forbidden. Um, there is a minority opinion uh, that became ultimately extinct uh, that it is, as long as it's, as it's not forcible, that it is uh, permitted, but that's uh, it's a view that uh, became extinct pretty much in, uh, within. Among the polemics between Sunnis and Shia, there is a mistaken Sunni belief that the Shia permit anal sex and the, the Sunnah forbid anal sex. And if that's what you think, then um, don't think that. It's just wrong. It's a Sunni invention, pretty much, as an anti-Shiite polemic. Okay. Uh, let's stop here. So okay, Alhamdulillah. Uh, let's stop here for tonight. Do you want to come do the honors? So now I've gotten to the habit of um, furiously now writing notes um, to hopefully summarize some highlights. Because the last couple times I've done that, and people say it's useful. Um, so first of all, I just want to say overall. Um, one of the things I think is just so powerful to this approach is I feel like when we read the Quran, um, or at least definitely how I used to read the Quran before um, the Project Illumin Halakas, or when I hear people talk about the Quran, it's so easy to read a verse, like an English translation, and you, you recognize that it sounds like it's old. You know, it sounds like the language is not modern or not relevant. And then you sort of get in this mindset like, oh, well, that really doesn't apply to us. It's not really, you know, this must have been something that they dealt with back then. And then you dismiss it. And I feel like one of the things that is so powerful about the way you teach us about the Quran is every single verse now has become relevant to our time. Like you unpack the context, the, the history, the meaning. So, you know, and, you know, giving us what the idiomatic expression was, how they understood it. And so it's like you really cannot dismiss any verse. 
And now, not only can you not dismiss it, now you actually understand how it applies to something in your life or something, you know, or, or how it calls out something that you recognize. And so it truly is like making the Quran come alive for our time. And it just, it's so, so valuable. Um, I mean, there's nothing like it. So, I mean, to me, just, that's helping us reconnect with God's words. Um, so just in terms of like things that just jumped out for me, like every single every single halakha you go through so much, but um, no special treatment for the aristocracy that, you know, this thing keeps going on with the Saudis um, and that everything in Hajj is designed to make you reflect on life or some something um, important and even and the logic of creation and the circumambulation. I remember the first time you raised that you were trying to help um, Oprah in her belief series understand mm -hmm. the the whole significance of the cir circumambulation um, that happens at Hajj. Um, then verse 204 that this is the only religious text that really warns us about charismatic leaders um, and that use and abuse religion for self-promotion um, or um, enrichment of some sort which is incredible to know um, and then the importance of creating conditions to speak um, out without harm and it reminds me of the example that you pointed out in um, the, the khutbah yesterday about the, the U.S. Um, citizen who was a Uyghur and wore a t-shirt at Hajj that basically said, pray for the Uyghurs um, and pray for what's happening in China and got arrested. So that classic. Um, and then the pointing out that just this, this whole approach like with Surah Baqarah and now that we've started to engage with um, laws that there's this philosophy of law and then moral principle, law and then moral principle, and that's a, you know something important that I'm sure people should you know academics should study or people should study, and then the idea of silm and uh, adopting that you know the analogy to nirvana because I think that was a really powerful under, um, analogy to understand even though nirvana is not our term, but um, entering into that moral state. Um, and having to do that through bir, uh, um, and that it comes as a corrective, um, like even I, the verse that you were trying, were helping us to unpack and saying that you know what makes the most sense is that this is a new covenant with the Muslims, and it's a corrective that comes to address superstitious beliefs, um, inequitous practices maintaining privileged spaces and again just um, warning about misusing speech and the relationship with God um, and then just the power of walking through the laws for example no war wartime exceptions right that's like something that is so much a part of our world and especially with like um, you know the bush years and um, you know uh, Naomi Klein wrote a whole book about um, the exceptionalism of war where it's like, I forget the title of the book, but it's the one about how, oh, laws can be basically suspended because we are in a crisis. So, you know, normal things don't apply. And then we really quickly slid into, we're always using that exception to justify the most unjust actions. And so the Quran is telling us up front, no, and that you have to take care of the most needy, regardless of even your own financial situation, whether you're up or down. Um, and that pointing out after the Prophet Muhammad's death, um, all we have is principle 
and that we should commit to sacrifice even if it entails hardship. Again, emphasizing the point about fitna not being about women, but about um, addressing or allowing injustices to go unaddressed um, and how that applies even like during the sacred months, you can't just put it off, you have to address it. Um, and I think the important point about the, the alcohol and gambling that you made, that people who were close to the prophet immediately abstained. And like I always remember the verse um, that talks about how people, there are people who are very clear in what's right and wrong, and other people who sort of want to straddle the boundary to make things unclear. And I feel like that happens a lot now, like when all of these discussions about alcohol, you know, gambling, or even slavery. Um, and then the importance of acts of caring and charity and giving through kindness, smiling, visitation, and something that we are not good at doing, which is giving up time and giving up our comfort, which seems to be um, sometimes harder to give than money. Um, so those were some of the, the highlights that, um, I mean, there's so much more, but you know, so that's as much as my, my scribbles can handle. Thank you so much. That's a gold mine of knowledge that I think so many people don't even get ever in the Islamic space uh, or you know, mosque situation. So, so, so grateful. Thank you everyone for being with us. Um, have a wonderful rest of the weekend and we look forward to seeing you again next Wednesday, inshallah. So, Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.